Hi, writers. I'm glad you are here for our new episode on the craft of writing fiction. And it is a craft, much like carpentry and beading. It's also an art, such as portrait painting. This is Jim Thayer. I'd like to talk about a specific aspect of the craft of writing fiction in this episode, and it's about our setting. Specifically, making our settings work for the story. A lot of us writers realize that, well, our character has to be somewhere, so the character is given a setting such as a coffee shop or a park or a living room or a classroom. There are two problems with such a default setting. First, the setting is dull. And second, it's inert. That is, it doesn't contribute to the story. Much of the time, a setting should not be a neutral element of our our novel. Everything in a novel should contribute, and our settings should contribute. So, how do settings contribute? A, A number of ways. First, of course, The setting anchors our characters to the ground. Uh, Characters have to be somewhere physically, and the setting is that place. And for some new writers, that's the extent of their use of setting. It simply pastes their characters to the earth. A second use of setting is that it can, can contribute to the story by being beautifully written. Setting descriptions of a forest or a sunset or of a city street or of a fantasy world, these descriptions are places for authors to show our chops, to use lovely and concise phrases that build a a memorable picture for the reader. For many readers, a setting that is written with lovely phrases is intensely rewarding. The setting beautifully written, takes them there. It's one of the reasons we read, to be swept up in the beauty of the language. Here's an example from Mary Stewart's wonderful novel, The Crystal Cave. It's one of her three novels about the Arthurian legend. Here's Mary Stewart. South Wales is a lovely country with green hills and deep valleys flat water meadows yellow with flowers where cattle grow sleek, oak forests full of deer, and the high blue uplands where the cuckoo shouts in springtime, but where, come winter, the wolves run, and I have seen lightning even with the snow. Isn't that lovely? And listen to Stephen King in The Dark Tower, The Gunslinger, the first of those novels. The man in black fled across the desert, and the gunslinger followed. The desert was the apotheosis of all deserts, huge, standing to the sky for what looked like eternity in all directions. It was white and blinding and waterless, and without feature save for the faint, cloudy haze of the mountains, which sketched themselves on the horizon, and the devil grass, which brought sweet dreams, nightmares, death. An occasional tombstone sign pointed the way. For once, the drifted track that cut its way through the thick crust of alkali had been a highway. Coaches and buckas had followed it. The world had moved on since then. The world had emptied. Yeah, Stephen King is a great storyteller. He's also a writer of beautiful prose.
Another thing settings can do is to establish a mood. Listen to the difference in these settings as they set the mood. Here is F. Scott Fitzgerald's uh, lush imagery and uh, musical language in his description of a garden on Long Island in the Great Gatsby. There was music from my neighbor's house through the summer nights. In his blue gardens, men and girls came and went like moths among the whisperings and the champagnes and the champagne and the stars. The last swimmers have come in from the beach now and are dressing upstairs. The cars from New York are parked five deep at the drive, and already the halls and salons and verandas are gaudy with primary colors and hair shorn in strange new ways and shawls beyond the dreams of Castile. The bar is in full swing, and floating rounds of cocktails permeate the garden outside until the air is alive with chatter and laughter and casual innuendo and introductions forgotten on the spot and enthusiastic meetings between women who never knew each other's names. The lights grow brighter as the earth lurches away from the sun, and now the orchestra is playing a yellow cocktail music, and the opera of voices pitches a, a key higher. Laughter is easier, minute by minute, spilled with prodigality, tipped out at a cheerful world. The groups change more swiftly, swell with new arrivals, dissolve and form in the same breath. Already there are wanderers, Confident girls who weave here and there among the stouter and more stable become for a sharp, joyous moment the center of a group, and then, excited with triumph, glide on through the sea change of faces and voices and color under the constantly changing light. Uh, that's F. Scott Fitzgerald in The Great Gatsby. What a fabulous couple of paragraphs of describing this party. Now, compare this pleasant, glittering setting of F. Scott Fitzgerald with Edgar Allan Poe in The Fall of the House of Usher. We're talking about how settings can, uh, can produce a mood. Listen to this mood. During the whole of a dull, dark, and soundless day in the autumn of the year, when the clouds hung oppressively low in the heavens, I had been passing alone, on horseback, through the singularly, singularly dreary tract of country, and at length found myself, as the shades of the evening drew on, within view of the melancholy house of Usher. I know not how it was, but with the first glimpse of the building, a sense of insufferable gloom pervaded my spirit. I say insufferable, for the feeling was unrelieved by any of that half-pleasurable, because poetic, sentiment with which the mind usually receives even the sternest natural images of the desolate or terrible. I looked upon the scene before me, upon the mere house and the simple landscape features of the domain, upon the bleak walls, upon the vacant eye-like windows, upon a few few rank sedges, and upon a few white trunks of decayed trees, with an utter depression of soul, which I can compare to no earthly sensation more properly than to the after-dream 
of the reveler upon opium, the bitter lapse into everyday life, the hideous dropping off of the veil. There was an iciness, a sinking, a (laughs) a sickening of the heart, an unredeemed dreariness of thought, which no goading of the imagination could torture into aught of the sublime. Well, that's a difference in mood. And what does the narrator here in the fall of the House of Usher do? Well, he goes inside. (laughs) Well, that's what uh, another thing a setting can do, and that's to offer a mood. Another thing settings can do is to add danger. Often it's not just characters who are threatening our hero and characters who are adding obstacles. It can also be the setting. Here is from Patrick O'Brien's seafaring novel, The Far Side of the World. The sun sank behind a bank of purple cloud. The breeze entirely died. Between the changing from one wind to another, the Cape Horn current seized the ship and carried her fast eastwards, and at the beginning of the graveyard watch, the southwest wind came up with a shriek. The shriek rarely lessened in the days and weeks that followed. Sometimes it rose to a maniac pitch that threatened the masts themselves, but it never dropped below a level that in ordinary times would have been thought uncommonly severe, though now it was taken as a matter of course. The people suffered cruelly from the ice on deck, ice on the rigging, ice on the yards, the sailcloth bored hard with frozen flying spray, and the cordage seizing in the blocks. South and still farther south, in spite of the danger of ice, of the mortal collision with an iceberg in the night, south and the hope of a change. But when it came, the change was for the worst." The full west wind strengthened, while for one wholly outrageous day, when the entire surface of the sea, mountainous waves, valleys, and all, was a flying mixture of air and fragmented water, and she was obliged to scud under a goose-winged foretopsail, the scale of the rollers was so vast that the frigate opposing them behaved more like a skiff. I'm sure glad I'm not on that boat in real life, but I'm really glad to be on it in fiction. Uh, The setting has added mortal danger to the story. Another thing that setting can do is to add a mystery to the story, a puzzle. Here's an example of that from Mary Stewart's The Crystal Cave. Uh, Early in the novel, it begins, Then... Then I went into the cage. This was a bigger place than had appeared from outside, only a couple of paces inside the archway, and my paces were very short. The cave opened out into a seemingly vast chamber whose top was lost in shadow. It was dark, but, though at first I neither noticed this nor looked for its cause, with some source of extra light that gave a vague illumination, showing the floor smooth and clear of obstacles. Next moment I stopped short, brought up by a shock which spilled the excitement through my bowels like water. Something had moved in the murk just to my right. I froze still, straining my eyes to see. There was no movement, 
I held my breath, listening. There was no sound. I flared my nostrils, testing the air cautiously around me. There was no smell, animal or human. The cave smelt. I thought of smoke and damp rock and the earth itself, and of a queer, musty scent I couldn't identify. I knew without putting words into the, without putting it into words that there had been any other creature near me, the air would have felt different, less empty. There was no one there. That's Mary Stewart adding mystery to the story using the setting. She asks, what power does the cave have? What is there to find? The reader knows this is Merlin's cage, cave. Where is he? Those are the things a setting can do. How, how can we write about uh, the setting? I return to Strunk and White's magic, three magic words. Be specific, definite, and concrete. In other words, be detailed with our description of a setting. And related to that, use all the senses. Most of us are mostly sight-oriented, and so we uh, plot our novel as we would a movie, with vision, with things to see. And sometimes we forget the other senses. Here's an example of the right way to do it. It's from Thomas Mann's novel, The Confessions of Felix Krull. Uh, Felix Krull, K-R-U-L-L. Listen to how he uses all the senses. It was a narrow room with a rather high ceiling and crowded from floor to ceiling with goodies. There were rows and rows of hams and sausages all uh, of all shapes and colors, white, yellow, red, and black, fat and lean and round and long, rows of canned preserves, cocoa and tea, bright translucent glass, of, uh, glass bottles of honey, marmalade, and jam. I stood enchanted, straining my ears and breathing in the delightful atmosphere and the mixed fragrance of chocolate and smoked fish and earthy truffles. I spoke into the silence, saying good day in a quite a loud voice. I can still remember how my strained, unnatural tones died away in the stillness. No one answered, and my mouth literally began to water like a spring. One quick, noiseless step, and I was beside one of the laden tables. I made one rapturous grab into the nearest glass urn, filled as it chanced with chocolate creams, and slipped a fistful into my coat pocket, then reached the door, and in the next second was safely round the corner. Uh, That's Thomas Mann. These two paragraphs of setting description use all five senses. We see the narrow room, the high ceiling, ham, sausages, preserves, cocoa, tea, glass bottles of honey and marmalade and jam. We see these. The author lets us smell the fragrance of chocolate and smoked fish and earthy truffles. He lets us hear good day, the unnatural tones in the stillness. He lets us taste. His mouth is watering like a spring, and he lets us touch. Uh, He grabs chocolate creams and slips a fistful into his coat pocket. This writing is wonderfully alive because we live 
the scene through our senses, our, uh, the setting. We, the author has used all five senses. Another technique for writing settings is to use contrast. In one chapter, we writers might have a peaceful setting, and in the next, a busy one. In one chapter, we might have a city scene, and the next, in the desert. We want to avoid default settings that offer the same vibe, a schoolroom, a living room, an office, a classroom, a coffee shop. An example of contrast in settings is in the first Harry Potter novel, where Harry's bedroom at the Dursleys, their home at 4 Privet Drive, Surrey, is a dusty and dark cleaning supply cupboard which is too small to stand up in. Don't we dislike the Dursleys? Uh, This is from the novel. There was a cupboard under the stairs, a dank and dirty cupboard where Harry had lived for ten years. Uh, This cupboard is made particularly egregious and grim when the reader learns that there is an extra bedroom upstairs at the Dursley's home, but it's used as a storeroom for their son Dudley's toys, most of which have been broken and discarded. Now contrast this in the novel with Diagon Alley, a place that's accessible only to witches and wizards and where items related to magic can be purchased. There's Ollivander's wand shop, Madame Malkin's robes for all occasions, and the bookseller Flourish and Blot's bookseller. Quote, This place was crowded with witches and wizards milling around their stalls, bartering and haggling, examining wands, watching demonstrations, eating lunch, drinking butter beer, and chatting with friends. Here the tone is light and cheerful, and there's interesting things and people people to see every step of the way. And it's made more vivid by its contrast with Harry Potter's cupboard, where he has lived for 10 years at 4 Privet Drive, Surrey. Another technique for contrast in our setting descriptions is between the setting and the character. A somber character will be made more somber if he is in a light and fun setting, and vice versa. Let me use the first Harry Potter book as another example. The book begins when Harry is 11 years old, and he thinks of himself as a rather average boy. Uh, Not much distinguishes him from the other boys. Sure, a a few small weird things have happened in the past as he's walked in the neighborhood, but but Harry has little appreciation of them, and he basically wants to survive. Early in the novel, he is portrayed mostly as an average young man. And then, compare the average uh, Harry with the fantastic Diagon Alley, and then the Hogwarts School, where the stairs don't always take you to the same place, where the third wing is off-limits for a mysterious reason where owls and bats can fill the dining hall air, and where ghosts can saunter by and even join you for dinner. 
Harry is plain, and the settings are vivid and enchanting. The settings are made more vivid by Harry's ordinariness. Is that a word, ordinariness? I hope so. So, there are some thoughts about our settings. We writers can take our readers to new and fantastic places, and we can make our settings work for our story. In a recent podcast, I spoke about how we can get started writing by just writing one sentence. It's in episode 64 if you want to hear my thoughts about it. I came across an article by the literary agent Anne Collette where she asked writers how they get started. Uh, Mostly they were talking about getting started writing each day and sometimes uh, breaking through writer's block. But the, the responses were interesting and charming. Here are a couple of them. The novelist Elizabeth Graver said, I grab a book I love and saturate myself with someone else's amazing words. That usually serves as a springboard for my own writing. That's Elizabeth Graver. I feel the same way. Uh, Few things get me as inspired as writing good writing, as uh, rather reading good writing. Here is uh, Florence Ladd. I use clothing to transport me to that place where I need to be, uh, I need to write. I have a black wine and magenta robe. I call my writing robe. Actually, I have two identical ones. One I keep in Cambridge, and the other in Burgundy. Something about that robe imbues me with a little more energy, creativity, and magic than when I'm writing in a Yale T-shirt. That's Florence Ladd. Here is Helen Elaine Lee. I look at my ancestor wall, which has photos of all those folks in my family who were proud and reached high, whose tales I am in some way telling. I do household tasks, listen to music, read the newspaper. Sometimes I light candles and incense. Sometimes I plunder my journal. Anything that will make a bridge. That's Helen Elaine Lee. Two more. This is Anne Whitney Pierce. After squaring my three daughters away at school, I sit down at my computer, milky coffee in hand, and dip into my file. Face to face with the days before work, we acknowledge one another, agree that the common goal is progress. I type one line, maybe one phrase that's been turning just so in my brain, yank out a comma, (laughs) Put, in, put it back in. Having taken the upper hand, I get up once more and trail the sunlight through my house, come back to my chair, and get to work. That's Ann Whitney Pierce. That's, that is just how it works for a lot of us. Here's one more. This is Marilyn Sides. I was a block writer for years and needed to build up the habit of writing every day. Once I realized I had a choice between being hard on myself or starting in a very small way, I made myself sit down for 10 or 15 minutes each day. The level of panic subsided because this daily ritual taught me you can get something done in small periods of time. It was sort of like physical therapy where I had to build up my writing muscles. Now I put in my contacts so I can't go back to sleep, 
make up the bed, have a second cup of coffee, and sit down at my desk by 9 a.m. That's Marilyn Sides. Aren't these nice glimpses of how writers work? I uh, work pretty much the same way as all of them, and I imagine most of us do. It's a day-to-day thing filled with small things to get us going. I have added a support the show button in the episode's description below. If you'd like to support the show, please hit the button and it'll take you to a Patreon page, and it'll be much appreciated. After visiting a gala party on Long Island, the sea south of the Strait of Good Hope, Merlin's Cave, and Mr. and Mrs. Usher's home, we have arrived at the end of this episode. My email address is jimthayerseattle at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Jim Thayer, hoping you will keep tapping those keys. <laughs>